Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, I'm Daniel Eisenberg, and this is McKinsey on Startups. Back in April, we featured a special guest episode exploring the meaning and potential impact of the metaverse with tech futurist and advisor Kathy Hackle, which was the first in a three-part series on the topic from At The Edge, the new podcast from McKinsey's Tech Council. Today, we are pleased to present the second episode, which features metaverse author and investor Matthew Ball. In his discussion with McKinsey's Mina Alagband, Ball offers his perspective on the dynamics of the shift to the metaverse economy, as well as regulatory questions, architecture issues, and how executives can begin to prepare their organizations for this new era. Hope you enjoy this part of our continuing journey into the metaverse. The potential for the metaverse is truly disruptive. How significant will it be? I believe absolutely that the advent of graphics-based computing and 3D environments are going to change many of the technologies, standards, conventions, monetization models. It's going to have profound generational change. And most importantly, it's going to reach many of the categories we've long hoped would be altered by mobile and the internet and yet haven't been. That's Matt Ball, foremost metaverse expert, investor, and writer. He joins me today. This is the second episode of a three-part series on the metaverse. I'm Mina Alagband. Welcome to At The Edge, a production for McKinsey's Technology Council. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I want to start by asking you a little bit about where the metaverse is heading, because funding and media and public interest in the metaverse have really exploded over the past year. And some listeners might be thinking, you know, are Web3 and the metaverse really going to change business models and change interpersonal relationships and identity in the ways that you've described in some of your writing? Or is this really just gaming 2.0? The raw technology required to produce what we would understand to be some sort of simulacra, which is to say it passes a critical threshold of visual fidelity, of functionality, of the number of people who can participate. We recognize that as having changed over the past few years, really around 2015. And that's a question of broadband penetration, of latency, of GPUs. On top of that, we see a number of different cultural events that are shown through behaviors in commerce and time. You go back seven years, very little money was spent on in-game virtual goods, roughly about $5 billion in 2015. Last year, putting aside NFTs, we had about 60 or 70 billion spent on purely cosmetic, non-functional virtual goods. Fortnite has sold more in each of the past four years in virtual apparel than Dolce & Gabbana, Prada, Gucci. Those are new cultural moments. We're seeing more recently this influx of traditional brands, many of the biggest, most sacred brands investing in these virtual spaces, and at large, we've seen a very large destigmatization of time in virtual worlds. What does this mean collectively? It means that this idea we've thought of for decades is now a little bit more tangible, even if in the virtual sense. There's hundreds of millions of people connecting to these environments every day. There are many of the most storied companies on Earth building a presence. And we have commerce in the tens and soon to be hundreds of billions of dollars. As you look forward over the next 12 to 24 months, you know, what 
are you expecting to see that will confirm to you that this isn't sort of a hype cycle or a blip and this is really a shift of the economy into um, into the metaverse? We're really going to see two waves. The first is that we're going to see more brands, more investment, more M&A and more users in all things 3D real-time rendered. These are all trends that have been going for multiple decades, and there's no reason to believe that time spent online, the number of smartphones in use, the criticality of digital to our economy is going to reverse. At the same time, we should expect some sort of backlash to the metaverse as a theme, as an investment case, as a point of shareholder prioritization. And and why is that? And that is because the narrative, at least in my perspective, has outstripped the products and the revenues that we see. Now, that's an important point of consideration. Companies, of course, need to be investing long before the revenue, the products, and the disruption is here. Never before have we so collectively said the metaverse is here, the products are here. Bill Gates has said that he believes in the next three years, the majority of meetings will happen in the metaverse. And the answer is that's going to take a decade or longer to really happen. And so we're going to have to go through that hump in the interim. What are the early signs, what are the early use cases that you anticipate seeing over the next two or so years? What's interesting to me about the metaverse as a transformative event for the global economy and the digital economy is that in many cases, we see those first use cases attacking categories that have long avoided digital disruption. My hope, and I think many believe, that the metaverse and VR and AR will finally start to show actual, tangible, measurable productivity improvements in education and healthcare. Let's start with healthcare. Johns Hopkins recently performed their first pair of surgeries on live patients using augmented reality displays. The head of the neurosurgery and spinal department has said that it's like using GPS for the first time. It's not that it teaches you how to drive. It doesn't drive the car for you. But you find that your ability to execute this task is much better than ever before. Why does that matter as a use case? Well, not only is the healthcare industry a very large cost sink, but like GPS and like AR in surgery, it just needs to have a marginal impact on something of critical importance. It doesn't need to perform the surgery, but all we need is a meaningful increase to success rates in surgery. Education is another good example. There are already a field of coursework and materials that are being produced that provide educators with a new way to express and participate in education in the classroom. I grew up building a volcano out of baking soda and vinegar and paper mache. Right now, students are able to immerse themselves at the microscopic level, agitate magma, be physically or virtually physically, ejected from that volcano into the atmosphere and to experience the impact of those physics, not just on Earth, but on the oceans of Venus. You know, Web2 is still full of problems that regulators haven't managed to solve from radicalization and abuse, data rights, security and so on. What should regulators be thinking about? What is the right regulatory framework and how paranoid should regulators be about this? So I have the following hopes. One is that consumers are going to place a renewed focus on trust, which is to say we're already seeing that in the Web3 movement. We can already see this in some of the policy changes of Microsoft, Facebook and others. But we're also seeing that regulators are looking forward rather than just trying to correct the last situation of problems. You know, if you take a look at what's happening in the EU right now, the EU is going so far as to propose requirements for the standardization of electrical ports. We're also seeing that they're now starting to legislate access to drivers and APIs in hardware. 
That's a relatively sophisticated approach. If you grew up as a millennial or uh, in the Gen Z generation, you just think of government having no control. That's actually a new problem. And we are starting to see that the EU and others are starting to say, here have to be the standards you adhere to. Here's what the user rights need to be. Here's what you can and cannot do. What do you think is the role of business leaders in driving a metaverse that takes into account stakeholder capitalism and consumer rights? The global economy is understood to benefit from global trade. And so why does this matter? Because we know what the optimal structure in Web 2 was. It was these varyingly vertically and horizontally software and hardware-based platforms, which largely built in isolation. They wanted to participate outside their system very little. And yet, if we want to build a parallel plane of existence, you need something that looks a lot more like Roblox or Minecraft, which is millions of individual developers, millions of individual consumers, all interacting in some form of virtual cross-border trade. And so the reason why I'm a little bit more hopeful as to what the future looks like is everyone is now saying we have to look at the economy of the metaverse. That's not about building the GDP of our individual product. They need developers to choose to reside in their experiences. They need developers to build in those experiences. They need users to patron, to bring, to invest. And so we do have some expectation that this requires collaboration. It requires something a little bit more familiar to the WTO than Facebook historically. There are these two potential architectures in the metaverse, right? One that's really centralized, centrally owned, centrally curated with one landing space, and then you kind of enter and access all of the other areas. And then there's sort of a more decentralized version that looks like an early version of of the web and is much more user owned. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit about what those two models look like um, and where we're headed Sure. So I think it helps to actually try to separate two frequently conflated terms, and that's the metaverse and Web3. In my perspective, they are distinct. Web3 is more of a question of database and systems architecture. That's where we're talking about decentralization. Why do those two get mixed together? Well, Web3 by definition succeeds Web2. The metaverse by definition succeeds our current computing and networking paradigm. The fact that they both succeed what we experience today naturally intertwines the two. It's not a question of decentralization or centralization. Neither side will win. It is a question of where along that spectrum are we. In any likely outcome of the metaverse, we're likely to see a structure we see today, which is a roster of horizontal and vertically integrated platforms, which are either primarily software-based or primarily hardware-based, are likely to concentrate all of the things we consider valuable, which is to say data, social graphs, spend, advertising, what have you. Many in the crypto community argue that if you do not have decentralization, then you cannot have property rights. Well, we say in the real world that property ownership or possession rather is nine-tenths of the law. Well, if you can never take possession of a good in a virtual space, it stands to reason that you will spend less on it. So that's a simple way of saying that under the Web3 architecture, consumers are likely to spend more. If a developer can truly own their code, they're likely to invest more. And if greater consumer spending and greater investment from developers are likely to produce more spending, then you're likely to see a more successful metaverse under that sort of structure. You just you said that the, the structure might mirror what we're seeing today in sort of the technology landscape. Are we going to see a world where you see 
the, the biggest software companies today really taking advantage of their foothold and actually sort of, you know, entering and succeeding and gaining the same kind of share in the metaverse? Or do you see gaming companies taking sort of a bigger sort of share of, of that world and that market? Or are there going to be new players who come in and take more of a, a, a position? This is a really important question. We have companies which lead in an era and yet are essentially eradicated in the next. There's another category, which are companies which succeed in one era and then continue to succeed in the next. Facebook started in the PC and fixed line internet era and, of course, grew even larger in the mobile era. We have a third category, which are companies which do thrive and actually grow in that next era due to growth in the overall digital economy, but find that they've been largely displaced or supplanted in their core business. Then there's the fourth category, the brand new companies that come in with a slightly different hypothesis, a different technology bet, or target different consumers and become as large or potentially larger for which Google or Snapchat is a fascinating example. It's likely that we see exactly that play out over the next five to 10 and 20 years. And so I think that's how we should look at the metaverse. Four different categories of companies that depend on a wide range of bets for which just investing and just believing and just having the capability to survive are not sufficient. Matt, what makes you most excited about the prospect of the metaverse becoming mainstream? I believe absolutely that the advent of graphics-based computing and 3D environments are going to change many of the technologies, standards, conventions, monetization models. It's going to have profound generational change. And most importantly, it's going to reach many of the categories we've long hoped would be altered by mobile and the internet and yet haven't been but it's going to be fascinating to see exactly how that plays out and right now it's still hypothesis driven as an investor that produces opportunity as a strategist it's a hard intellectual problem and as i mentioned earlier as someone who hopes for a better future it gives me renewed faith that that's possible i i hope your your vision for it comes true but what gives you the most pause what scares you about this prospect If you take a look at the primary challenges that we have online, at least in the West, a lot of it actually is oriented not just around whether or not a handful of companies are becoming even more powerful and successful. The bigger problem is how we feel in the internet era. That is a question of abuse, of harassment, of radicalization, misinformation. And it's actually kind of strange how far we are into that era and don't have good answers. And look, I'll give you a simple example. We think about these questions of radicalization. We saw ISIS very effectively use social media midway in the last decade to radicalize many, to literally recruit insurgents to various countries around the world where they would be trained. Well, in a decentralized future, in a 3D simulation, those training grounds become a lot more profound. They don't require travel, and they actually provide a superior education environment. I don't think we're very far in solving those problems. The blockchain is unlikely to solve them as well. And it's going to get a lot harder and scarier, frankly. I agree. And, and adding adding quantum computing into the mix, I think, really adds like a level of security, insecurity. What can business executives who are really trying to understand what the metaverse is and what the implications are, what is one practical thing that they can go and do today to get a better grasp on what is the metaverse? These virtual spaces are where new insurgent brands will use the generational difference in users, the reluctance of today's giants to move into that space, 
the general confusion as to how best to use it, that will be deployed to build their brand, to build their reach, to reach a new generation of customers with brand new products. How do today's business executives defend against that? The simple answer is you need to understand the space, you need to be investing in there. No one knew exactly how social would play out in 2008. There was actually nothing you could really do to intellectualize an answer. You had to test in it, you had to play in it, you had to build. The challenge that we have in the metaverse is the skill set is actually far more difficult. We know that it's important for brands, as an example, to tell a story in advertising, especially in social advertising. And yet telling a story in a 30-second advertisement or with a YouTuber is much easier than building an immersive environment. It's much easier than building virtual goods that are fun to use. And so I actually see the biggest challenge as being you've gone from communicating a message to telling a brand story to needing to create something that someone chooses to engage with on an ongoing basis. The only way to get good at that is to explore, to understand the dynamics and to test. What was your path to the metaverse? Well, so I've always been a gamer and a sci-fi addict, but I've always been really fascinated with what's next. While I was at Amazon, it was clear that gaming was going to be the next frontier. And then very quickly moving to gaming, you started to realize that gaming was no longer gaming. And so I just followed those threads and that has led us to this next internet. It's great chatting. Thanks, Matt. See you guys. Thanks for listening to At The Edge. I'm Mina Alagband. Please go to mckinsey.com to read more of our latest publications on the metaverse. And if you like what you heard just now, please leave a rating and a review. See you soon. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.